saw a couple of Chelsea fans on my Twitter timeline today actually having a, a chat about feeling disconnected from football in general and Chelsea in particular. And I think it's, it made me think there's probably a point at which like when, when some sort of normality comes back, when not every game's on telly, when some of the games are running simultaneously, when, when there are a proportion of fans in stadium, like stadiums, you know, by September, it might be what half full or whatever that football as a whole kind of needs to think about how we, how it treats that moment. Because I think that it does feel as though there's been a massive drift. Like people aren't, you see it with like engagement figures, like people just aren't that fussed by quite a lot of stuff in football now. It's, you know, it's, it's funny because particularly with Chelsea, if you've got a load of new players that you haven't seen and a new manager that you haven't been there to watch the transition yeah, to, yeah. it does. But even though, you, you know, you're going to love your club just as much and, and all that, and not going to fall out of love with your club for that reason. But yeah, it becomes less and less recognisable. So you can yeah, understand true, yeah. there being yeah. a, more, a, a bigger gap between, you know, emotionally, even, even though it's, it sounds like it'll be rebuilt, those bridges will be rebuilt. But will absence make some of those moments all the more glorious? I was thinking when um, Shola Shoratire made his debut for United the other day and, and Ahmad came on as well in the, the Europa League game, is that obviously they've come on in an environment of not having <laughs> 75,000 people cheering their first steps onto the field. But that sort of like, that will all be held back. And that first opportunity that, say, a young player, like you've just said about a, a new signing, gets to play in front of the home crowd, they'll be like, determined to give them that monumental lift that they weren't able to give them weeks yeah, yeah, yeah. there's going to be a new stat there's going to be a debut a full debut a home <laughs> debut a premier league debut and a fans debut yeah actual debut in front of people it's like we i think it was jesse lingard quite a lot that like jesse lingard's not had that full west ham experience of you know being greeted onto the pitch and then 20 minutes later booed off <laughs> so to what extent is he is, is jesse lingard an actual west ham player but until somebody's planted a corner flag in the centre circle, I mean, can you even say you've played for West Ham? This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith of the New York Times and Stephen Wyeth of BT Sport, BBC Match of the Day, BBC Radio 5 Live, Premier League Productions, IMG. Yes, for the first time ever, Steve has appeared on more things in the last week than Rory. Uh, so congratulations to Steve and his accountant. The food is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should say Steve and his partner Katie uh, the food is a food bank in Salford uh, which my friend Suzanne would like to promote she and many others have helped those in need over the last year and this is the food bank she has been working with in particular it's the Trussell Trust food bank in Salford details on our social media feeds in the coming days if you have any that you would like to draw our and therefore our listeners attentions to uh, then please send it to setpiecemenu at gmail.com the football is the rather pompous Anatomy of a post-match interview. Now, Rory had to be told this because it happened in Rugby Union and his Twitter algorithm knows better than to bother him about that particular sport. But at the weekend, a post-match interview of a rugby player and the reaction to it was a significant talking point. So we're making it a talking point ourselves this week, not to retread the Owen Farrell, Sonia McLaughlin path too much, but to ask how a football post-match interview works from the journalist's point of view. So that is uh, all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. The correspondence this week, Rory. Hang on, I've got an important question. All right, okay. On the back of your script, it says someone comes from behind, Ecuador come from behind to beat Bolivia twice. They came, back, came from behind twice to beat Bolivia. What is that from, that world service? 
Uh, Nervous, though, this is a television script. I basically, all my television scripts, I take home with me because... Is that allowed? They, they or is that like, like a CIA data, thing? <laughs> data protection issue. Um, they, are, they are all printed, but they're only ever printed as backup. Okay. So whenever you see somebody doing this, they've barely read any of those scripts because it's all on the autocue. So I take you should home. really explain what you've just done for the benefit of people who was aren't it, currently dialed into our Zoom call, which is everybody else apart from us three. First time I shuffled my papers and tapped them on the table in front of me, I felt like I'd arrived. Um, so I take them home with me because they are um, essentially they have been used, but not really. So I want to use them again for the purposes of not wasting paper. Quite right, so, too, Hugh. You're an admirable character. All my all my uh, scripts or anything that I ever print out is on the back of television scripts from the BBC. Now, I don't think there's a data issue, particularly as this this script has clearly not been completed, which uh, gives you a window into my work ethic. Ecuador had to come from behind twice to beat Bolivia as and then who knows. This is a script from um, the 12th of November 2020. I'm currently scribbling my notes on the back of my commentary notes from Mainz versus Augsburg at the weekend. You've got to reuse your paper, Rory. I am um, good I, for the environment. I famously only buy non-recycled paper. Uh, <laughs> so. Write one sentence and then burn it. <laughs> one word per sheet. And I buy, I, let me tell you, I don't buy A4, I buy A3. Just the biggest paper <laughs> that I can find. No, I'm not. I'm currently going through um, two WH Smith notebooks. Because they're the cheapest. Notebooks cost a fortune. It's insane. Anyway, let's get on with the show. You, you could have a wife that works for a company that gives her free notebooks and you can use those. Ooh, and like, yeah. that's, that's incredibly useful. So I don't know where I was, but I'm just going to return to this part that the correspondence uh, this week, Rory, um, mm. is chiefly about Latin. Oh, good. Um, so Henry Upton has a quick follow up to his offering both uh, on the meaning of Cato Claris atque for Catum uh, and also the translation of Buffalo as Bubulus, as he uh, offered us last week. Hello again to the Tetrarchs. I hope Rory forgives my butting in. I wouldn't be able to translate shoddy Latin phrases if they were volleyed to me spontaneously during a live recording, even if the grammar were correct. If it heals his ego, the true job of my dreams is to be a football journalist. So I want to express my unironic admiration for Rory for laying the classics to football journalism blueprint. The irony there is that I'm much better qualified to, to teach classics than I am to be a football journalist. We should swap. I don't really have a retort to Rory's point that ancient Romans would have called North American buffalo buffalo because he is right. They would have just adopted the new word or made some portmanteau as they did with Greek and other languages constantly. Bubulus, in fact, looks Greek in its derivation, says Henry. It's natural for languages to change. In fact, we have a convenient word for people who pronounce Latin incorrectly for ages and keep jamming it full of newfangled vocabulary. They're called Italians. Si uh, valetis valeo, that's from Henry. I suspect that what Romans would have called a buffalo is something to do with bovem hirsutum, which means hairy cow. Hairy cow, yeah. Meanwhile, Ollie Wicken adds this. Dear all four of you exactly equally. Uh, love the pod. In SBM 219, you read out an email from Henry Upton in which he used the noun pedantism. I was extremely surprised that Rory didn't pick him up on it and suggest the noun pedantry instead. That's from Ollie. That is Ollie correcting the person who was originally corrected by Rory, who had been corrected in the first place. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of juvenile correction going on. Um, pedantism, I, I, I just sort of thought it, thought it was a trap, to be honest. 
<laughs> because you didn't want to be pedantic enough exactly. to draw yeah. attention to it. Uh, finally on this from DJ Nolan in Washington, D.C. I had a contribution to the Latin-related chat, he says, which will astonish both my Latin and Greek teachers, Jerry M. and Mick B., respectively. I'm sorry, and I don't want to, to stereotype, but Jerry M. and Mick B. do not sound like Latin and Greek teachers. Uh, both of whom, says DJ, failed to stimulate much interest in either beyond what I was required to do, mostly if pass exams. I should note parenthetically that the fault was all mine and not theirs at all. But it was also interesting that Rory complained so vociferously about the Latin word for television as it is, as he said, one of those Franken words with an etymology that spans more than one language. My favourite is one that I saw on a T-shirt. Polyamory is wrong. It is either multiamory or polyphilia, but mixing Greek and Latin roots... Wrong. Uh, others, he says, uh, include climactic, speedometer, bureaucracy, and gullible. Courtesy of DJ Noling from Washington, D.C., via London and Dublin. I don't think speedometer counts. Speedometer. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't count. And that, that, speedometer is not trying to be clever. Television is trying to be clever. Speedometer is not. No one is making an attempt to look sophisticated by, by saying we should call this thing a speedometer. Do you know what I mean? It'd have to be better if it measured swimming trunks. Anyway, let's move on. We're burying the lead here. We're not giving credit to our correspondent for having such a grounding in Greek and Latin and going on to be a DJ in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, DJ. Uh, Graham Stephen has something on system or circumstance, which is the subject of SBM 219. Did General Blight, Appleman, Dr. Gloom and Captain Cream... Banana Man references uh, right. from Graham Stephen. Thank you, Graham. The discussion about systems and sticking with them is extremely relevant to what has been going on in Scotland and Stephen Gerrard's march to the title with Rangers. Gerrard took over a team that was losing the Europa League qualifying rounds in Luxembourg and in three years has turned them into a team that is running away with the league. They are undefeated at the time of writing. They still are, Graham. And has lost just five games in Europe over three campaigns, two of which were against Leverkusen in the Europa League last 16. I know that the standard social media response from fans of the tourist slash half and half scarf league is that he is doing it in a farmers slash pub slash Sunday league, delete is applicable, but the turnaround is remarkable and is in no small part down to the system that Gerard introduced, many will say, copied from Klopp, developed and stuck with over the last three seasons. The team setup doesn't change and they go up with the attitude of this is how we are going to play and we are confident that we will beat you. The benefit being that every player knows their role in the team and it does not change. Even if they have to make changes in personnel, the setup doesn't change and the player coming in knows what is expected of them. The system has dictated the recruitment policy as they go out to find players who will fit into specific roles. The success of Jared and Rangers this year is down to having a clear vision of what has, what has to be done to win and being given the time to allow him to to strengthen the system through recruitment, training, and understanding. It was noticeable that when Celtic went on their ill-fated trip to Dubai, that their captain said that they went to work on different formations. From a Rangers point of view, this was great news, as it implied that Celtic didn't have an identity on the pitch, weren't sure how to win games, and were scrambling to find an answer. I, for one, will be delighted if Rangers and Gerrard stick with their system. A kind regards, that's from Graham Stephen. That's, that's in I, it's interesting, because I, I wonder whether... Ordinary, ordinarily you'd assume Gerard would get far too much credit in the English media for whatever he does at Rangers. I think in a way, he's maybe not getting enough because he had to wait until his third season for it all to click. And that the perception has set in that Steven Gerrard, who I would admit I didn't I didn't think would would was necessarily kind of temperamentally suited to being a manager. But maybe the that early impression of those disappointing first two years has kind of coloured how we see everything he achieves. And it's interesting actually that this has been a the story told in England about the Scottish season this season has been much more about Celtic's collapse than it has been about Rangers' success. 
Uh, and a final point that comes from Buffalo Ewan Haig, who knows our triggers so well that he makes it briefly and then departs. Quick question to set Steve off. What is the point of away goals in the Champions League when you're playing in an empty stadium in a neutral venue in a third-party country? Just asking. Cheers, Ewan. You could have just ended that with what's the point of away goals in the Champions League? It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. We're, we're a couple of weeks away from the, from the return legs of the last 16, but there is going to be a team that goes out in away goals. And if both of those games are played in neutral venues, that is going to kick off massively. But equally, the flip side is, is equally unfair, which is that if, say, Chelsea play Atletico Madrid in London, and Atletico can presumably make the point that they've had to play away twice. It, the way the UEFA have done it, I understand it's difficult and that there's no perfect solution. But the way they've done it is is really noticeably less than ideal. Talking of Steve's triggers, uh, Rory, you worked mm. at BT Sports Score, mm-hmm. the excellent BT Sports Score at the weekend. You had an excellent opportunity to say during that broadcast, for F's sake, you don't go to VAR, particularly if you're the referee checking to see when you blew the whistle. Yeah, so the, the, the <laughs> Premier League like game, <laughs> the Premier League game that was on during my stint on the excellent BT Sports Store was West Brom against Brighton, in which the Lee Mason Farago happened. And I've got to admit, I'm not as I'm not as ardent an advocate of VAR as Stephen is, but I I I like I have a famous liking really for natural justice, and it's you could feel the conversation start to turn into this is this is going to be cast as a VAR cock up effectively that this is that VAR has posed some sort of problem and isn't it dreadful blah 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 hasn't VAR done the wrong thing that whole thing was Lee Mason's mistake and referees are entitled to make mistakes and we shouldn't castigate them too much he he made a mistake and then to be honest I think he he basically panicked and his what's interesting about it was his natural reaction in in the VAR era was to assume that he could go to VAR either to buy himself some time or I suspect in the hope that the VAR could get him out of it Whereas all that needed to happen, and it would still have been a controversy, whatever happened, if Lee Mason had said, actually, do you know what? My Either my, my first whistle or my step back to indicate to Lewis Dunk that he could take the free kick was a mistake because the opposition weren't ready. I am rescinding it, and I'm rescinding it through the medium of my second whistle. If he just said that straight away, I think, A, it wouldn't have been quite as big a controversy. B, he would have looked substantially less silly. And see, I think the players probably would have gone, gone along with it. It's not, I feel like I've seen that happen before, that a, a free kick has been taken quickly and the referee in the midst of it has decided actually, no, that free kick couldn't, shouldn't have been taken quickly. It doesn't often end in a goal and, and the kind of the allowing, disallowing of a goal. But the way it played out was <sighs> remarkable, really. Like genuinely quite, I mean, I don't really go into refereeing blunders as a <laughs> source of interest, but... It was, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen one that bad, but it was nothing to do with the VAR. I don't, it, it's actually slightly un, unfair on whoever the VAR was that Mason got them involved. He, he had the whistle in his mouth. It's his mouth. He's in control of it. Yep. Just rem- remember what you've done with your mouth, Lee. We do need to reframe or try and reframe, as we have done continuously over the last couple of seasons, the conversation around VAR because it's getting the blame for things that are simply not its responsibility. Another recent example was the the Wolves-Leeds game, where Patrick Bamford scored a goal from an offside position, was flagged offside on the field at the time, a decision that was ratified by the video assistant referee, but that Patrick Bamford on social media had a dig about VAR not improving the game. Mm. Well, the linesman flagged you offside, Patrick. So from that moment on, VAR's only involvement is to see whether that decision was incorrect. You, without VAR, you would have been offside with it 
you were shown to be offside. So we that, stop blaming VAR for things that are, are either beyond its sphere of influence or are nothing to do with it whatsoever. But at the risk of retreading old, old ground, part of the problem there is is the language that we use. So it's it's you know such and such had a goal ruled out by VAR. Well, no, they, yeah. they had a goal ruled out by the rules of the game. Yeah. And to and, me, and, and can I just say at that point, I was on the radio the morning after that Patrick Patrick Bamford incident, and um, not to give any clue as to the fact that I was editorialising any of my BBC copy. Well, that but, doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> but just to say that I, it was it was a big deal because of Patrick Bamford's um, social media um, contribution. But because of exactly what Steve said, it became less of a big deal when I was responsible for any of any of uh, the, the content on the radio. So you, so Hugh, you do listen Hugh, to me. <laughs> yes. Hugh actually used the rest of that bulletin to, to rail against the um a lot of the NHS contracts that have gone to, to, to friends of Matt Hancock. The um just unrelated to anything. No, I think I think that's that's really important that that to me, so I think maybe where Stephen and I differ is I think that the introduction of VAR has has highlighted that a lot of the laws don't really work anymore and that they need to be updated and and more specific. And I just, I totally agree with that. Don't, oh, make fine. Seem, okay. don't make it seem like I don't agree with what I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't remember. Oh, so where, like, you're trying where, to set me up for a massive fall. Where Steve and I stand on this as a united front. <laughs> Completely. That we think that VAR has highlighted f- flaws in, in the laws of the game. And I think that's the bit of the conversation that football's not really prepared to have. I don't, I don't really understand why. And flaws in the vernacular as well. F- flaws in the way that we describe things and cannot modify it enough to... Yep. To be accurate, new... and we've kind of you, you wouldn't have you wouldn't kind of you know Bamford denied winner by linesman. Do you know what I mean? Like that wouldn't that would be really weird if Patrick Bamford was offside and and had correctly been given offside and and the linesman gave them offside. You wouldn't be like, well, this is the linesman's fault. You wouldn't get Patrick Bamford tweeting and linesmen are supposed to improve the game. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's I think the vernacular has to prove the language with, with, with the language we use to talk about this stuff has to improve, but also. Football has a responsibility to say, look, we've now got, what, three, four years of evidence of VAR. We can tell now that these rules, these at certain aspects of the rules, are no longer fit for purpose. We need to update them. And it just it seems to be completely unwilling to talk about that. And what's probably most obvious to everybody listening is that, once again, those people who know our triggers have triggered us. So congratulations. Yes. Sorry. Uh, correspondence or indeed triggers of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So uh, to a subject that we've touched on as part of other discussions, but has been given its own show as of today. This is the anatomy of a post-match interview. On occasions past, we've had reason to mention Pep Guardiola versus Damian Johnson. Uh, from back in 2017. We talked about Erling Haaland's 11-word interview once. We've also considered how managers tackle press conferences. But following on from an episode at the weekend in a different sport, we thought that we'd bring any experience that we might have to bear on how something like that might happen and why the response to it was, of course, completely ridiculous. If you haven't seen the interview of England Rugby Union captain Owen Farrell conducted by Sonia McLaughlin for the BBC Six Nations coverage, essentially, there had been a couple of controversial refereeing decisions that had gone against England in their defeat to Wales. They have their version of VAR, and yet it still happened. There was a rare unanimous sense of them having been hard done to, but Farrell did not want to bite on the questions on that that Sonia offered before becoming frustrated enough to cut in over those questions, to which Sonia then moved on to asking about England and one player in particular, giving away too many penalties. With Farrell's hackles up, his answers became even more trite. And after just over 90 seconds, it was all over. And then the torrent of online abuse ensued. That abuse brought Sonia to tears as she read it in her car after the game, subsequently tweeted about her reaction to it. Obviously, 
it's completely awful, but it also hints at a lack of understanding about how these things work. The editorial, time, relationship context in which post-match interviews take place. There are several different ways an interview can go depending on any of those things. And those possible paths can sometimes diverge as a result of the tiniest spark. So here, if we might be so bold, is the anatomy of the post-match interview. I'm going to leave that basically to you two for once. This will not be a Rory episode. Listeners will be really relieved to hear. The, um, because print journalists get a little bit of time before they have access to combatants in, after, after a game. So managers generally turn up for their print press conferences about half an hour after the final whistle, I would say. And then players in the before times, the mid zone, you go down to the mid zone for about an hour afterwards, really. 45 minutes, an hour afterwards, that was when the players would start to filter through and ignore you. Mm. So the, the, those flash interviews, those TV and radio flash interviews that happen straight away, you know, while everyone's still caked in sweat, that's for, for the broadcasters amongst us, which means this is very much the Hugh and Steve show. Turns on mute. <laughs> Turns on mute, reads the newspaper. Um, Although there are, some, there are some things that we, we share, which we will maybe get onto about the challenges of doing those those interviews or conducting your role in a press conference a so soon after the game and b whilst you have so many other things to contend with because one assumes you're you're filing copy you're having to to be in touch with your desk at the same time as thinking about what you're going to be asking a manager you're trying about. to work out what what the latest you can get back to the car park is before it shuts you want to make yeah. sure you can pick a route where you're not attacked yeah. and if you're yeah, waiting in the mix zone you're often getting very cold because the mix zone can sometimes be in an area of the stadium which is not very well insulated often in a car park or some sort of tunnel yeah it's well, there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot going on often you have to work out if you can sit down in the mix zone and not lose your place uh, you have to do a degree of banter in the mid zone. There's a sort of quotient of banter. I mean, don't you have to fight Steve. with a cameraman. You always have to have a fight yeah. with a cameraman. Sundays only, Sundays <laughs> only. You've got, sometimes you have to explain to American journalists why uh, the quotes from a certain section of said corridor will be held back for four or five days and then still treated as though they're new. And often with a last night said thrown in. Uh, but no, I mean, don't get me wrong, Steve. I've got opinions on it. I just, I just, I'm bowing to your expertise. Uh, it is one of the the most challenging aspects of of the job. It's it's challenging for both sides of that that conversation as well. I think there have been some improvements uh, during the the coronavirus pandemic in that you have to keep your distance from the the subject of the the post match interview because I think for, we've managed to get more of a conversation from those situations than the the inquisition that it it felt in the the corner of a tunnel or in a cupboard in a tunnel with the the interview subject pinned back and a, a cameraman and maybe more than one reporter also squeezed in into the room so I, I do think there have been improvements over the course of the last 12 months in in the way that those take place but it isn't ideal to do them immediately after the game in terms of emotions running high and clarity of thought but it isn't something that's about to change because it is an important aspect of a television broadcast and and TV companies want those interviews as, as soon as possible after the final whistle so they can build them into their production and so it can help them fuel the the post-match conversation in their studio. And, and when you have a, a situation like the England against Wales Six Nations game at the weekend, which has been already spoken about at half time as being deeply divisive and of 
of merit, if you like, in terms of a conversation that's worth being, worth being had, and also in terms of what you would ask the participants afterwards, um, that, 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 is, that is the context of, of Owen Farrell and Sonia McLaughlin. And, and not to, again, not to relitigate what happened at the weekend, but essentially the reason why there was this reaction is because the questions put to Owen Farrell were about the controversial part of the game. As it happened, there were two elements of her conversation. The first was about the refereeing issues and the second was about their own discipline. And the way that she pivoted, bearing in mind how Farrell had reacted to the first part, gave rise to a lot of people backing Owen Farrell's response to those questions being a little bit chippy. Now, it is, we should say, it is Sonia's responsibility, and this is the point at which we leave that interview because it is um, a conversation which needs to be nuanced, which over the course of the last 48, 72 hours, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, that has not necessarily been particularly nuanced. So I don't want to further dip our toe into that particular mire. But there is a situation where a reporter will be duty-bound duty by the editorial values of the programme for whom they are working to ask about that controversial issue. So, Stephen, if, if you are preparing for a post-match, say you've done the match of the day game, you are preparing for that post-match interview, and you know it's that Burnley, been... <laughs> it, it, It's Burnley Palace. It's Burnley Palace. It's the it's only why... three kickoff to ever exist on a Saturday. It's Wyeth territory. Tell me how Easy you <laughs> go, go to that post-match interview, bearing in mind that you know that pretty much the only thing that is going to be used in the edit, or the only thing of any journalistic value, is going to be the questions and the responses about that controversial issue. How do you approach it? Um, because those, those people who did watch that interview with Owen Farrell might be surprised to hear how different it would be how you approach that than, than if you've got 90 seconds on BBC One in it's during live programming yeah. and they're on the pitch and they're the losing captain. Well, the difference between what Sonia was doing and say, if you're watching a live game on Sky, BT Sport, BBC, Amazon, wherever at the moment, is that if, if it's a live game, they will have someone there designated to do the interviews before and after a game. If you're doing a match of the day commentary, it is then your responsibility to conduct the post-match interview as well and you don't have a huge amount of time at the weekend it was at Newcastle Newcastle Wolves Nuno Espirito Santo was already doing his Sky post-match interview before I'd got down from the gantry so when you're talking about preparation your preparation time is the time it takes you to walk from the commentary position to to pitch side or, or to the tunnel wherever the interview is taking place it would be Twitter at St James's Park to Abseil <laughs> I have inquired as to whether that is a, is a possibility. Apparently, there's some health and safety issues that they're not. <laughs> zip wire. I choose a zip wire, but still, yeah. So your mind is racing a little bit in the immediate aftermath of a game because you're, you're you're replaying in your mind, hoping that you've got the big moments right because you know that that's going to be edited down into a, a nine or ten minute highlight package for, for match of the day. So you, you're thinking about the game, but in terms of preparing for that for that post match interview situation, you are reminding yourself what were they what were the key moments in the game you know was there a, a controversial red card or a penalty which I need to make sure absolutely I ask about the quality of the goal that won the game you know the key moment in the match you need to be thinking about making sure that you get an answer regarding that and then also like the wider context situation so at the weekend you know a, a point for Newcastle offers them some encouragement but that their general downturn in form means that you've got to ask Steve Bruce a little bit about the, the situation that they're in. They're getting ever closer to the relegation places in the same way as you've got to ask Nuno Espirito Santo about how he's 
turn things around. They've got they've gone on their longest unbeaten run of the season as a consequence of a, of a draw at Newcastle. So you're trying to get all those ideas clear in your head whilst also reminding yourself that you've probably only got two, two and a half minutes to get those questions across. So you can't become too bogged down unless there is one massive outstanding controversy in the game. You can't get too bogged down on one incident because you've got quite a lot of grounds to cover in a short short period of time. And, and just on the Nuno point, because there was a, a previous game, and this is fitting, bearing in mind the conversation we had about Lee Mason just a moment or two ago, you did a game, a Wolves game for five lives, Stephen. Again, I was on the morning after, so I was able to see the excellent work that you had provided me with, so thanks for that. But um, he criticised Lee Mason as a result of you asking a question about the controversial moment in that game. Now, this is an interesting because I want to focus. Well, do you know what, Hugh, I'm, 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 let me just jump in there because there wasn't a controversial moment in that game. And that's what made what Nuno said afterwards so quite extraordinary is that he clearly had an issue with Lee Mason in general and the, the way he goes about refereeing a match. So it wasn't about a particular incident in that match or a particular controversy. It was a general thought opinion he had about Lee Mason's suitability to be, to be refereeing the match. So actually that came about from a point of view of, of his body language of sensing that there was something that he wanted to get off, off his chest, which is another aspect of preparing yourself for that post-match interview is you've got to read the room a little bit and understand. As, as you and I both both found with Sir Alex Ferguson back in the day, if United had won, you had to be a little bit careful. You had to tread caref- more carefully with, with Fergie after United had won than after they'd lost. Because on those occasions when United were beaten, you generally got a better back and forth with Fergie under those circumstances. It didn't make any sense, but you learnt that over a period of time. And, and, that, and that's what I mean about focusing in on that, on that controversial point, because the, 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 what I was going to say is that if, if the interview and the, the value of a post-match interview, and indeed anything that anybody wants really from a post-match interview, is a, an answer on something that has happened in the game of some level of controversy. It's all very well if somebody scored a hat-trick asking them about a hat-trick, but you don't necessarily get the best answers. And also, you know, it is not necessarily the best answer that you get from somebody talking about something good that they have done. So when do you ask that question? If you know that you've got two and a half minutes, let's say that's six, six questions, five or six questions. Do you go in first question and say massive controversy? Does it not depend a little bit on the context? So if you were to take the Brighton West Brom game from the weekend, I, I haven't seen all the, all the post-match interviews, but I would be very surprised if it wasn't the first or second question, just because it was the defining incident of the game. Whereas if you've got a, a two, one win and you can, you know, you can lead in with a kind of a nice question about the goal scorer or yeah. what the, what the, and it's this, that, that principle applies across where, whatever the context that as a rule, it's, it's quite good to, to have one as a chaser, just because not a chaser. What's yeah. the opposite of a chaser? Uh, an aperitif <laughs> because it gets them, it gets them talking. So you never, as a rule with interviews, you don't start off in whatever medium you're working with a difficult question. But I think in, if you've got Lewis Dunk trotting over to the sideline and he's clearly furious because Lee Mason's messed him around, you probably open up, yeah. you probably open up with Lewis, what the hell happened there? And, and, and this is the point I'm trying to make because you will, you will have a number of things 
that you are able to make that decision based upon. Yeah. So if you, if, if for example, Lewis Dunk is walking over and he's, and he's furious and he has been the wronged party, which is the issue that takes us back to that Owen Farrell interview as well. So yeah. it's more legitimate you going in straight away because you are able to empathize. Yeah. You are not accusatory. That, that helps you determine when you might ask that question. The time constraints might help you ask that, determine when you ask that question. And also the relationship that you have with that person, with yeah. that manager, allows you to also determine when you ask that question. And finally, the pre-interview interview, which is something that we'll come on to in a moment, but I just want to bring it up here because it has value, is that you are able to sometimes determined simply by asking them before the cameras roll or before the tape rolls um, what their view is of that or indeed if they have been on the other side of things where it's a controversy that they, they benefited from how much they are willing to to talk about that thing so so, so back to the point you're going to make Steve in in the case of the the West Brom Brighton game yes you do get straight into it it's it's so overwhelmingly the key moment there's no point opening up with you know Brighton or disappointed to lose again you you go straight into it especially if Lewis Dunk is wandering over towards you because you you must under you immediately know if he's the player being brought out for the interview or if they have yeah. or if you've requested Lewis Dunk and that request is being facilitated then you know that he's willing to talk about it so you don't need to engage in the in the niceties you know the the, the half volley to warm him up he's clearly willing to talk about it otherwise he wouldn't be coming out to do the interview so in in those circumstances yes you do get straight into it because you need to get the answer and you also need to be prepared that you might not get the answer straight away because emotions are running high because tempers afraid a little bit that you might need to to turn it more try and keep it as conversational as as possible so that you don't end up with those curt short infuriating answers which don't make great tv or radio mm. the other way around is say there's been a a dubious sending off in the game or you know a penalty incident that you know has gone against what most people would have thought then you might not get straight into it because actually the the overall Something result about of which the game they are angry yeah. but it hasn't necessarily been as clear cut. There is a debate about it rather than then the, yes. that person being obviously the wronged party and you are able to, as, as Sonia Blocken did, start with empathy, start with sympathy. Yeah. yeah, you can talk a little bit more about, right, what, what, what's the context of the game? What, what about the, the result? What does that mean for you? And then you get into how significant was that moment in determining mm. the outcome i do think we have a responsibility of courtesy of, of relationships and this is maybe something that that those watching from home don't quite grasp because you're not just interviewing that person once and mm. then never seeing them again you do have to have a relationship with them so you have in the same way that anybody in their place of work needs to tiptoe around sensitive issues a little bit carefully being aware that they will need to deal with that person and encounter that person on a regular basis going forward. You can't steam in sometimes disrespectfully in the same way as you can't be too sycophantic the other way, which it always, I find it extraordinary in which, you know, in the, the example of those leaping to Owen Farrell's defense after the rugby union interview at the weekend, that I was astonished to see how many people seemed to think that he should not have been asked difficult questions after a game in which there were controversial decisions made by the officials and in which England by all accounts played badly and were culpable for, for the loss from their own ill discipline. That, yeah, there were a lot of people who were so much a fan of 
the team or the player or the manager that they don't believe that they should be put under the spotlight under any circumstances. And that's just as extraordinary a viewpoint as the, the polar opposite, which is those people who believe that an interviewer, an inquisitor should dive straight in and give the subject of the interview a hard time all the time, every time. And I suppose that comes back a little bit to our political discourse in which if you are a supporter of that particular political party, you will constantly bemoan how tough a time that politician gets in the media, whilst you will continuously suggest that the opposition party's members are getting an easy ride. Well, I mean, if you look at any the reaction to BBC News coverage in general and Laura Coonsberg in particular, you see that that made plain that there is a belief among supporters of the Tory party or, or like a Brexit faction or whatever, that, 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 that the BBC is biased against them. And there is a, an absolute conviction among supporters of the, of the, the pro EU movement or labor or whatever, that the, B, the BBC is biased against them. And that, that I think suggests that the BBC is doing basically quite a good job, to be perfectly honest. The, I think the, the first rule is that, that, that nobody ever sympathizes with the journalist. So, I, I love a soft soap interview. I do not like asking people hard questions. It intimidates and frightens me. And you, you will occasionally be told that you've gone, e- gone easy on somebody. And that, that is no doubt true in, in certain situations. But I think equally there is a reality that, if, that you cannot sit down with a footballer or a manager or an executive or whatever and immediately start peppering them with really kind of antagonistic questions. I don't find in what I haven't found in 15 years of journalism that that gets you particularly that gets you very far to be perfectly honest there are occasions where I think you can do it but even if you you look at the Brighton West Brom thing you'd have to you'd almost have to take a position on it to ask the questions to get the best stuff out of Lewis Dunn that's how I, how I, how I would have approached it and that might that might be wrong but you'd, you'd start with a kind of can you please explain that to me I still don't understand you would you'd take a position basically where you're the kind of the interrogator who's on your side you play the good cop yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean you don't you you can't just bowl in and be back you know should you have responded better? It, it wouldn't work. It would just, it would just kind of antagonise them and, and you'd get, as Steve says, those, those curt answers. The problem is that the, that the audience seems to be split between people whose vision of journalism is effectively the bulldog, that you have to be sort of snapping and snarling to get that kind of Paxman-style interrogation going, and people who believe that the journalist is effectively there to, to record the thoughts of the, the athlete or the or the coach in that vague, I don't want to criticise anybody, but that vaguely like city fantastic way you get after running races in the Olympics. That, you know, where they come over yeah. to the side and somebody says to them, you've done a great job. And you yeah. think, well, hang on, that's, no, they finished seventh. That's not, yeah. it's not a great job. Which, like, funnily enough, Sonia McLaughlin does that job for the radio rather than the television coverage of the Olympics, the athletics, and she mm. is rightly lauded for the fact that she doesn't soft pedal. those interviews even though they are immediately somebody coming off the track and they are sweaty they are emotional she is able to challenge them if they have underperformed by their own expectations or indeed others expectations so there are examples of those interviews that don't necessarily get as much airtime or as much notice and Sonia is one of those people who does it to a great to great effect but the thing is that that even then you have to kind of and this this sounds really kind of it's like nuanced to the point of of what about it? But you have to take into consideration the audience. So if you're the sideline reporter at the Olympics, the BBC, the vast majority of people who are watching that running race or jumping competition or what, what, whatever 
basic athletic which, endeavor which it might be. Every other technical phrase you would use to describe the, Why did you jump so high? The could you not have jumped higher? Did you try, did you think about jumping higher? The um what about further? Did you consider jumping further? And how the, about um, running faster? Was that ever you, in your thoughts? Can you go any faster or is this the limit? Um the <laughs> The, um, you're telling me your limit is fifth. Your, uh, the fastest you can run is fifth. Was, Have you, what about like, different shoes? I like it when they talk about tactics and 100 metres, as though there's a tactic other than run as fast as you can. And that's, yes. <laughs> do you feel you've got your tactics for that race spot on? Well, no, I didn't run as fast as I can. I thought, I thought I'd just take the, the first 50 metres really easy. And see, what <laughs> see how much energy I had left. <laughs> the, um, but even then, with the, with the audience... People, the pe- people are watching it are watching it for the flag waving. Like you have to understand that they're not watching it because they're there'll be a section who are watching it because they love athletics and track and field, and they'll they'll be really interested in the te- in the technicalities of the performance and you know the how well the Ukrainians done. But the vast majority are not in, well not interested in those sports in particular. Possibly not interested in sport at all. But they watch the Olympics as it's an as an expression of like national pride. And so what they want is to be told this fellow who's just kind of underperformed his personal best by a minute and a half in the 200 metres and has, you know, hasn't even finished. That's, but what a great job you've done, aren't you great? That's, that's like, a that's, tough day at the office. <laughs> that, that's what they want. It, he's still running now. and But that, that's what those people want. They, that's what the audience wants. And I think the BBC are conscious of that, but they are in a, in a kind of no-win position because there will be a section of people watching that interview who think this is, you're taking it too easy. Yeah. And it's the same in it's yes, the same and in they have to sport. cater they have to cater for both and part part of the reaction yeah. to that Owen Farrell interview is that is somebody reacting to the awkwardness that they feel yes. watching Owen Farrell and yeah. therefore instead of thinking well I want the answers to those questions they're feeling awkward and so they therefore respond by saying you should not have done that you should not yeah, have yeah, asked, yeah. asked those questions not because they're worried about the answers that are elicited they're worried about them feeling awkward and it is a natural response but to that, also that that the, there is there is also a tension between what the audience wants and the audience watching a rugby match, a needs to take a long look at their lives <laughs> and b will be partisan. They will be thinking, I am on. I'm. They're naturally inclined to be on the side of Owen, Owen Farrell, who's kind of the you know the England the centerpiece of the England team and is the you know the hero and the you know one of the best players of his generation. All that stuff. Possibly, I don't know. Is he as good as his dad? Well, that's that's an interesting debate. That's a cross-code debate that we need to have a conversation so about his, at some point. His dad made better choices and played a better sport. We know that, right? Let's that that's point one. Anyway, the vast majority of people watching will be England fans who'll be disappointed, and there'll be a section of England fans who want to know what the players think about the um about the controversial ref- refereeing decisions. But there'll also be a, a section of of England fans who who feel almost protective of Owen Farrell and think, well, you shouldn't be putting him on the yeah. spot. But the BBC has has a dual responsibility in that situation, as any broadcaster would. One of which is to cater to its audience, and it's difficult when it's England against Wales, just obviously its audience is in both countries. But the other is that there is a journalistic a journalistic prerogative, and if the story is the controversial referendum decisions, then Sonia McLaughlin or whoever the journalist is is duty bound as a journalist to ask those questions. And a lot of people don't like to see. I think what we've seen in recent years in a lot of spheres, people don't like seeing the journalistic sausage being made. It's not always a particularly elegant process. It's not like it plays out in kind of in a drama where you get these cunning journalists like asking questions and somehow eliciting the response that that they want whilst not actually kind of crossing any lines. Sometimes you have to sometimes you do have to be abrasive and challenging and seek out those moments of tension because you do have to I don't like doing it. It's it's really hard. Yeah. 
And I'd, but you do have to ask those questions. And one of the problems that you have with post-match interviews, I think, is that the, the environment of it is, re- is really less than ideal for, doing, for, for, the, for the practice of journalism. It, as Steve says, it has to be yeah. done then because yeah. it has to fit into the broadcast. But the players often haven't processed what, what's happened to them particularly well within a few minutes of a game. You don't have necessarily have the access that the, um, even as a journalist, you don't have the access that the viewers might have to, to different perspectives and what's been said here, there, there and everywhere. You are kind of, it is an immediate thing. It is a natu- naturally like a knee-jerk situation and that's not particularly helpful a lot of the time. And, and the other thing to think of at that point is the fact, and it is a, um, a legitimate criticism uh, on some broadcasters that they have set up a narrative that has been growing as a result of the conversations that have been had either during the game or at halftime in the studio. And sometimes they are guilty of responding to that narrative to a greater extent than actually what had happened in the game. So if, for example, there'd been a large conversation about this refereeing issue in that rugby game, but it wasn't really an issue, but it had been made into an issue because of a conversation that had happened only on the platform of that television broadcast and not necessarily in the, in the wider sphere, that there, there have been occasions where, where post-match interviewers are guilty of following that narrative more than thinking ed- editorial about, about the greater whole. And in that situation, they are rightly criticised to a certain extent, not a pylon, not a series of social media abuse, but but that is an issue. And I think Steve and I have, have have noticed that before. When when, for example, we were covering a Manchester club and it had been on Sky, we noticed that Sky had a different agenda to what we had noticed in the game because they had been building that narrative up mm-hmm. as the course of the game had gone along, and they wanted to focus in on that. Whereas having not watched the Sky coverage when covering the game, commentating ourselves, we had had a different appreciation of that incident, or indeed a different appreciation of the whole. And so we oft, often thought. This is more about you than it is the person you're interviewing and indeed the greater context of the game. This is that that's not what happened, by the way, on Saturday um, at the Millennium Stadium, sorry, at the Principality Stadium. And that's where you come into, Steve's getting frustrated now, it's funny. That's where you you come into this, the idea that there is a tendency to fixate on, on like controversy aspects where it it isn't necessary and it isn't warranted but it is easy to talk about and it's easy to look like you're asking the tough questions. And you, you end up with a lot of leading questions from pitch side reporters. Who, and again, I can't stress this enough. That is not a job I envy at all about relatively minor refereeing decisions that have gone one way rather than another. But that is, easy, that is easier in the time allowed effectively to get a meaningful clippable answer. Yeah. Yeah from a manager or a player than it is to say, can you talk to me about, you know, how did your, how did your double pivot work yes. today? That's not. And again, I think that's a function of the audience that there is an awareness that, that broadcasters are catering for, for a very broad audience that you will have people watching. It's diff- The pandemic's changed it a bit because, you know, if it's Burnley palace at three o'clock on a Saturday, the chances are the people watching that are Burnley and palace fans. There's, yeah. You're not getting a massive kind of neutral audience there. But if it's a big game, you're going to have an audience who is is fascinated by Manchester United and some by Manchester City. You're going to have so you've got the the tribal kind of loyalties there that complicates things. You've also got an, an audience that comprises devotees and more casual observers, and the devotees might want the kind of the deep seated tactical discussion. You know, Guardiola sort of you know detailing one of his kind of brilliant you know why why he played Joao Cancelo as a goalkeeper or whatever, and. But the vast majority of people don't want that. 
and the, 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 this is a realization that you quite often see with broadcasting more generally that or even football coverage more generally that there is this, that there is a kind of a sizable minority and a valid minority who say we want more kind of tactical or analytical detail in in match in, or in, either in match reports or instead of match reports so we want you know it covered in this specific way does that kind of dovetails with my interests but the vast majority of people don't want that that's the problem that not not that your audience has lots of different levels of of knowledge of the game and the one thing that the broader audience can understand is the referee got that wrong what do you think of the referee getting that wrong and i think that is where if you combine that with the fact that it is immediately after the game, so emotions are running high, you're getting a load of questions about things that might be relatively minor details of, of in terms of the broader match. That's where you get this kind of culture where refereeing decisions get inordinate amounts of focus, which leads us into, funnily enough, the whole problem with VAR. Yeah. Because we talk about VAR all the time because it's easy to talk about in the structure of how post-match interviews happen. And, and, and they want to, this is just to frustrate Steve further. I could probably could have done this a little bit later, but they, they want that, but they also want the manager to contribute to the debate that is already happening. Yeah. So, so either pundits or people in pubs pre-pandemic would have been having the kind of conversation yeah. to which they want then the manager to, to, to stick his oar into. They don't want the manager to talk about something else. They don't want the manager to change the subject. They want the manager to join in the conversation they're already having. So that is why there is a which lot of responsibility are- on the interviewer to provide that for the broadcaster and remember the broadcasters are entitled to take that tack they play and they pay an awful lot of money for the access to the game and the access to those involved in it and therefore yes they might have an agenda they might be drilling into a point but they have three or four minutes to interview the manager after the game and Although there's got to be courtesy and respect, they are entitled to conduct that interview or the line of questioning. That they are entitled to choose the line of questioning. It doesn't have to be mutually beneficial. There is an awful lot of conflictions, of course, there are, and contradictions at times as well. But Rory has, has mentioned something that is, is worth reminding ourselves of that if the game is being shown, if the sport is being shown on a subscription television service, then as Rory says, you're much more likely, the audience is much more likely to be made up of fans of the two clubs involved or general aficionados of that sport who are paying the subscription to have the access to that coverage. If it's live on the BBC, you are going to have a much more general audience. So the interview will be conducted accordingly, bearing in mind that it won't just be absolute fans or incredibly knowledgeable people about what might have occurred you're not going to get double more... pivot questions on the bbc after again no there'll be a more gem- general so you will get a lot more of the well you know why did that happen how did that happen how did it make you feel because you have to be able to engage with the audience that you have and that's something that people sometimes lose sight of if they are critical of of the broadcasters or the interviewers or the way that something has happened is that very often they are seeing it through the prism of their own allegiance Mm -hmm. and not able to take into consideration the wider context of, of why that conversation is being, is, is taking place. And that, and if we've talked about it in our our stuff on the media before, that is you, you simply cannot cater a broadcast to each individual viewer or listener. 
you have to try yeah. and you have to target the median somewhere along along the line and that that's and that is another that's another thing that comes into it and and, and your responsibility sorry final final thought on that is again remember the people watching will have an allegiance one way or, or another to to one of the two teams involved as a broadcaster your allegiance is to your employer and the job you are delivering what they require of you not necessarily what a partisan follower of one side or the other is expecting to come out of that and that, that's absolutely right and it's a, that's a really hard line to strike and the other thing that, that, that i'd actually add is that i think that the fact that the medium through which a lot of that casual kind of viewer will encounter a footballer they, they tend the only time that you, your casual viewer will hit will have heard wayne rooney speak is probably in the and i'm choosing him on purpose is in those that 90 seconds, two minutes after a, a massive game in which either he's won or lost and either way he's knackered, that then massively impacts our perception, the general perception of what they are like. So that I genuinely believe that part of the reason that footballers have a reputation for not being particularly eloquent or particularly articulate is because most people only hear them speak immediately after they've done the sort of physical exercise that the vast majority of humans could not survive let alone do to that level and then have a chat about a couple of minutes afterwards. You know, be, if you or I tried to do that, we'd be far too busy vomiting to, to give an interview. Do you know what I mean? And although the players aren't doing that, they are shattered. They probably, a lot of what they've just done on the pitch is either something they've learned by rote or is, is instinctive or is just something that comes really naturally to them to the trained every day of their lives. They're not in a position to explain it from like a philosophical point of view. So they will resort in that 90, 90 seconds, two minutes to give in fairly cliched try answers because that's that's all they've got at that point in their lives. If you speak to them even an hour afterwards, you can quite often have a slightly more in-depth conversation with them about what they've done because they've had, had a chance to eat to start to process it. And I'm guessing a couple of days afterwards, they'd be able to give you a fairly a fairly sort of in-depth review of their actions. Do you know, the, the, the kickoff time, extraordinary as this might seem, the kickoff time can sometimes determine how quickly you end up speaking to somebody after a game. You know, that, that Newcastle Wolves game was the eight o'clock kickoff on a Saturday night. The interviews took place an awful lot more quickly after that match than they might have done if it had been a three o'clock kickoff because there wouldn't have been the same urgency for those involved to get on the road and get mm. home. You know, Wolves, Wolves wanted to get moving. They didn't want to hang around afterwards. Whereas if that had been a three o'clock kickoff, who knows? Nuno and Steve Bruce might have shared a drink before they came out to do their post-match interviews. The players might have showered and changed before they came out rather than you know interviewing Jamal Lascelles who was incredibly emotional about the points dropped who was who was still in his kit who still had you know strapping on his knees and his his ankles because they 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 know they have an obligation to fulfill those post-match responsibilities and sometimes they'll hold back and come out a little bit later and sometimes you just want to get them out of the way because they have other things to be getting on with there are all sorts of circumstances that maybe that might determine the emotional state of your interview subject. And, and I think there is a certain amount of understanding from both viewer and interviewer about the player post-match flash interview, because you can understand that they have been involved in something, as Rory says, it has been instinctive. They have not had a thought really about it. Even at the moment they were undertaking that skill, mm. they might not have had a thought about it. So to ask them to digest this all and then give a, a thoughtful answer is, is something that we don't necessarily expect as, as much as we do of managers. I, I want to finish our conversation by talking about 
that the occasion when the interview becomes the story. So a confrontational interview becomes the fact of the story rather than the thing that you were having the interview about. So there have been a couple of, I, I mentioned the, the Damien Johnson, Pep Guardiola um, situation, I think New, New Year's 2017, Pep's first season, uh, there was an issue where uh, Damien Johnson misheard or misunderstood Pep Guardiola saying it's his fault, as in he was fouled because he was mm. directly translating the Spanish. And so Damien Johnson thought that Pep Guardiola was saying that it was Claudio Bravo's fault mm. rather than Pep Guardiola saying Claudio Bravo was fouled. Yeah. Uh, leading up to this incident. So you can have a conf confrontational issue based on a misunderstanding. There was the occasion, um, it was in November, I think, that, that uh, Jurgen Klopp and Des Kelly went mm. at each other after 12.30 kickoff following uh, a Wednesday night Champions League game. And it was at the Brighton, I think it was the Brighton game, wasn't yeah. it? And, and Liverpool had lost and, and Jurgen Klopp and Des Kelly ended up firing pistols at each other but not really at each other because they were making different points Jurgen Klopp was annoyed BT for picking the game but Des Kelly was annoyed that Jurgen Klopp was complaining about a slot existing at 12 30 mm. um, because the Premier League vote for those slots uh, to be in existence and of course Jurgen Klopp is complicit bearing in mind his club vote for that slot to exist so there are occasions where the interview becomes the story because of a confrontation but quite often that confrontation is a misunderstanding there was even a, an element of that with with Owen Farrell and Sonia McLaughlin there's just, just a slight crossed purposes that then escalates and anybody who's ever had any sort of argument whether it be domestic or based at work so many of those arguments become not about the thing that created the argument. They become about the reaction to that argument, a misunderstanding of a point made during the argument, or indeed the argument becomes the argument. And that happens in these situations when there is a confrontation between interviewer and interviewee. I think that the vast majority, funnily enough, in football of those incidents are based on an unwillingness, an inability, a, a sort of accidental misinterpretation of something relatively simple. So I think the Klopp, Klopp Des Kelly one is quite a good example that, and Des, you know, Des Kelly got a lot of praise for kind of sticking to his guns and giving a bit back to Klopp. And that that's fine. But then, you know, also Des Kelly is kind of there as the, and I like Des a lot, but is kind of there as a representative of BT. So if if a manager is, is perceived to be having a go at the people, it, the people that you represent, you probably are not on a bound, but likely to, to say, hang on, there is a defense for that. But as you say, it wasn't Klopp's point was reasonable. And the problem for me there, and this is going to sound really, really snooty. I don't mean it to. So the, the, again, there's a structural issue with it. And it, it happens after, after basically every game. It doesn't, it's diff, more difficult now because of the way the media are sort of cocooned in stadiums, but in the, in the before times, you would rush downstairs from filing your your runner. You're on the whistle match repeat. You're on the whistle match report to the um, to the press room where they have big screens where you can watch the flash interviews as they happen. And there will always be journalists, quite rightly, holding tapes up to the tellies to record the quotes, uh, which they will then run in their first editions, probably, and if they've got time, depending on as Steve says when the kickoff is, and the often actually in, in, in later editions uh, because because of the nature of deadlines obviously print deadlines don't always dovetail perfectly with with when football matches finish so you might find that that journalists take those quotes down sometimes because they're better sometimes because 
they are quicker. So the manager might have a, have a pop at, the, at some, something or other in the TV interview. And then you might come into the press conference 45 minutes later and explain it really reasonably. And you think, actually, all right, that's a fair point, blah, blah, blah. I'll, I'll present it as that. But it might be too late by that stage. And then you have the issue that for big games in particular, newspapers, again, in the before times, would have two, three, in the case of the male, 17 or 18, <laughs> people at football matches. And th- the match report will exist on, online, obviously, but also in print. And it's important to note that although all, all newspapers are, are digital first now, like they, they think more in terms of their online engagement than, than their actual print edition, well, most of them do, they're still run according to print conventions. That's really important. So you will have a match report, which will be a, a report of what has happened in the game, but you'll also have a news piece off the back of the, the paper for a really big game. And that, generally, you don't want that to be Manchester United last, beat Manchester, last night beat Manchester City 2-1 with goals from Nemanja Matic and Phil Jones. You want it to be someone saying something or some controversy or something to kind of engage the reader with a piece of information that they didn't necessarily know from just watching the game. And if that occurs in those post-match interviews then you will run with that as your story and so what you get is a kind of confected controversy that is that has been allowed to be built basically because of the structure of new, of, of how new, the, yeah the structure of how news works effectively it's, it's to do with the structuring of news and I think that's a real drawback and it's it means you get a lot of kind of false scandals not scandals but false arguments and false tensions but also it t- it's turned football into the football effectively is the, the seed ground, the seed bed from which the controversy grows. And what we talk about increasingly isn't football, but the kind of the consequences of football. That's where, that's what drives the news agenda. And I think partly it's to do with the audience that, you know, the, the nature of the audience that we've talked about, that there isn't a massive audience who want in-depth analysis of how tacti- how games have played out tactically. And to be honest, although, you know, horses for courses and stuff, but a lot of it's not that interesting. And a lot of it is very hard to parse accurately because you don't know for certain that things have panned out the way the manager wanted them to pan out. Exactly. It might that, just be... that, that chaos random thing that we've spoken about. Before. Yeah, like a lot of it might just be, well, this is what happened and kind of it turned out that that worked and I'm going to take credit for it to teach me a job, but I don't know. Um, but also it's much easier to understand this man is upset with this man, this woman is is angry about about this woman's decision. Like that's that's kind of how it, that's, that's a kind of soap opera theme that we can all understand. But it's also to do with the way news is structured, I think, that, that the talking is separate from the, the doing, and it has a separate slot, and it also has a separate tone. And it's that that the TV channels then pick up on, and it's all, it all feeds into each other. So what is, said in, what is said on TV, what Roy Keane says in the Sky Studio after a game, is picked up by the papers, because it's a, it's a good story, it's a good line, it's a good line, let's do the Roy Keane line, let's do the Roy Keane line. But then Sky will then, and the BBC, you know, Five Live will talk about, about the issue that's been raised by these comments. And then Sky will, will talk about the issue that's been raised by the reaction to those comments. And it just becomes this whole kind of self-fulfilling mm. yeah. circle. Everybody's complicit, even though quite a lot of those who are complicit give the impression that they are not necessarily involved in this, this complex that you're speaking about. It's kind of the football opinion industrial complex. Yeah. That's, what, that's what kind of we we all trade in and you can be complicit whilst knowing, knowing exactly what you're doing. And you can, you can try and stand aside, but still actually be complicit or you can be complicit because you haven't really thought about it. And all of those are completely legitimate, but I, but I do think it's, it's hard. It's hard to avoid the, the conclusion and the suspicion that the post-match interview, which is 
as Steve says, like what, 90 seconds, two minutes, two and a half minutes, four, five, six questions straight after a game where the, where the commentator or the reporter has basically run down some stairs thinking of what to ask, making sure they're ticking all the right boxes, can shape the narrative around the club, certainly for a week, possibly for a you know, period of the season, and after a while, for the season itself. Klopp's quite a good example of that. Because of that Des Kelly thing, there has been an, an enduring perception that Jurgen Klopp is showing the strain. Jurgen Klopp has always been, A, a dreadful loser, and B, a bit chippy with reporters. And a lot of the time, he's actually got... The basic point that he makes is... And I have you know, some sympathy for Klopp, so I'm, I'm maybe not a completely impartial observer. But a lot of the time, what Klopp really gets angry about and where he sort of bites back at reporters is when they asked him questions that he thinks they should be able to answer themselves. And this, this is, the, this is your, your theory on Jurgen Klopp yeah. that you've, you've mentioned before. And, and it's, it's important to say that when I mentioned about being complicit, I am we also, yeah, we I'm also complicit. For example, going back to that, that, um, that case where Steve interviewed Nuno after the game where he made those Lee Mason comments, two things happened. First of all, Steve noticed that he said something and realized that this now was the story and asked follow-up questions to elicit further quotes to help not only um, us in the morning, but also this this story give you know give birth to, to, feed, a, the, to feed the to, monster yeah to feed the monster um and i then use that as my top story the next morning because not only of the industriousness with which Stephen conducted that interview and excellent journalism skills were on display there but also because there was an understanding that that is the story and that makes that makes the story and and i mentioned about when the interviewer and the confrontation between the interviewer and the athlete becomes the story the, the tradition is particularly in politics is that the interviewer does should not be the story that that, that is not the that is not the role they play they are there con as a conduit to try and get um, a story out of the person they are speaking to so there is there is a bit of an issue when the when the person who is interviewing becomes the story and it's not necessarily i'm pretty sure and saying this is not necessarily what that interviewer wants Either they are happy for their the quotes that they get to be the story because that reflects well on them mm. and that is a job well done, but to become the story is probably a step further than they they want to be, and I just I just want to say this before we finish is that there is a complete misunderstanding about the relationship and the deference with which these in in which these interviews take place. So for example, Sonny McLaughlin will know Owen Farrell really well. Mm. I would imagine, I have no idea, Owen Farrell would have texted Sonia after that interview or Sonia would have texted Owen Farrell to have a little thing about it to say, sorry about that, I couldn't say anything, didn't want to get fined for calling out the referee, didn't want to say anything mm. inappropriate, hope you understand, Sonia back, yeah, completely understand, you understand why I had to ask those yeah. questions because that's my job, yeah, of course, no worries at all, they'll see each other next week before the next game, they spend a lot of time in each other's company, the relationship is stronger than the deference mm. that those watching and subsequently yeah. abused Sonny McLaughlin expected her yes. to show to him. Yeah, and, and that is a, a, another crucial element of this is that you, you do have to have a relationship with these people. You do have to build a relationship with these people and you do have to judge those situations on their merits each and every time. But Eddie Jones, who is the, the coach of the England rugby team, is, is a prickly character. And, and that combative style that he has runs through the players as well as coming from him. So in situations where things have gone against England, an interviewer will have to prepare for that sort of backs to the wall. Mm. Everybody is against us. We are, you know, we're, we're, 
we're circling around ourselves. We're going to be be defensive. So Sonia would have understood that and have been prepared for the fact that Owen Farrell might not have been immediately forthcoming and would have had to probe a little bit deeper to try and get the answer that her broadcasters, the people employing her, expect. So that's why as a when you're in those issues, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be able to think fast. You've got to have detail to back up anything that you might ask if it comes straight back at you. And and you, you have to think on your feet. I mean, there, there was a, just to come back to Jürgen, uh, uh, recently there was a situation where, and, and I have an awful lot of sympathy, by the way, with Premier League football managers. The, the, the reason that the, the newspaper journalists don't get to speak to them for about half an hour is not because they're chilling out. They've spent half an hour doing radio and TV interviews. Those three minutes that you see on your subscription channel or on the BBC are just a very small part of the, the post-match commitments they have to overseas broadcasters. And Jurgen Klopp had a falling out with an overseas broadcaster very, very recently in the, in the week that we, we found out that his, his mum had passed away. So he was clearly dealing emotionally with an awful lot of things. But he was asked a question about Liverpool being 10 points off, off the pace by, by, an, by an overseas television reporter. And for some reason, again, this misunderstanding situation, got into a, an argument with him about it because he was telling him it was 13 points. But it wasn't. It was 10 points and City had a game in hand. Mm. They, they were sort of both right. But, but Jürgen kept digging into that situation. And, and because of the language barrier, the, the reporter was really confused as to what was going on. Mm. And, and Jürgen ultimately told him he was wasting his time and wasting his questions. And, but they do, they, get, they do so many interviews after games. They get asked so many questions. Just think for yourself as a viewer, as a listener, how many times a day do you misspeak or does somebody mm. misspeak to you? How often do you have a, a breakdown in communication with someone born out of, of a misunderstanding? That can happen in a post-match interview environment. And that's why you need to be able to think quickly on your feet and be prepared and have all the detail that you need. And even under the best prepared circumstances, sometimes things don't go anything like the way that you thought they might. And uh, even even in a situation where Steve and I spent a lot of time talking to Sir Alex Ferguson, I mean, in my 10 years of attempting to build a relationship, talking in the hundreds and hundreds of times with Sir Alex Ferguson after matches, um, I still had massive deference towards him in the end because I knew without it, I'd be absolutely screwed. And, and that was all part of keep, keep all part of keeping you on your toes. I mean, one of my favourite memories of you and I waiting for, for Alex Ferguson at uh, the Carrington training ground was that, that one week he'd completely ignore you. You'd be sat there waiting and he wouldn't even look at you until the, the tape was rolling and, and you started the interview. And then the following week, there was one occasion we were sat there and he was chippy. He came down the stairs, whistling a tune. He had a pair of football boots in his hand and he wrapped Hugh around the knees with these football boots stud side into his knees. You're right, son. How's it going? Hugh is in absolute agony because a 70 year old <laughs> man has just whipped him across the knees with a pair of football boots. You see, you, you never knew, you never know quite what to expect with some of these incredibly complex characters at once once in a at, at a, an away game in the champions league in moscow that the time after the, the the champions league final they went back to play a, a, a group game we happened to run into him whilst we were in the kremlin armory museum 
and he was incredibly engaging, really, you know, wanted to have a conversation, he's been fascinated with history. And it just happened, I can't remember who I was with, but he was with a couple of other people. I think Mick Phelan was there too. And, you know, we're just standing by this incredible stuff in this museum. And then the next time I saw him was on the Friday morning, pre the next Premier League match. And I offered up something whimsical about the fact that last time I saw him was, you know, in, in this museum. And he blanked me. He blanked me right? so furiously that I learned. And I mean, I learned a hundred different times, but I learned on that occasion. Yeah, this might only be 48 hours later. And we might have had a shared experience just two days ago. But don't think for a second that means that you have an enhanced relationship because he did not want you to think that. And therefore, he would make sure that you were on your toes, as Steve said, every single time. Was there an element there of what goes on tour stays on tour, even though it was just the Kremlin Armoury Museum? <laughs> might, might have been, although the only people who were present at that moment and then the subsequent moment that they were the only people who were there. So there was, there was no, nobody that I was, I was certainly wasn't rolling on the tape, put it that way. Uh, but that, that there is an occasion where you, you, there are so many people uh, where you can understand that that level of deference remains, even as you try to build up a relationship, but they, they don't necessarily provide the majority. Most mm. of the time building relationship does have genuine value and you are able in a difficult circumstance where there has been something controversial that you might not, that you, that you want to talk about, but the person you're interviewing might not want to talk about that you do broach it in a way that is um, suitable for all sides. Uh, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. Normally this is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel worthy details removed, but having to chinches enforced absence continuing this week, we once again have something sent in by a listener. This is from Matthew Durrant, who uh, Steve and I will know as uh, a, a tremendous representative of West Didsbury and Chulton FC. Hello to glasses, cup of tea, novelty calendar and a succulent plant. Just to name a few things on my desk and fit with tradition. I'm writing about soccer stories. Now, I don't have my own, but I think two of the team may have some that they have been withholding. If not, they are at the very least part of modern football history. In conversation with a friend earlier, we were discussing the early output of football club Twitter accounts, and particularly those of Manchester City, and was wondering if you could provide a backstory for some of the content discovered. In digging, we found lots of gems, breaking news of the Daily Express having an increase in circulation following the MP expenses scandal, staff trips to Asda, and updates on fake tan levels in the office. And it was no surprise to find out that Set Piece Menu's own Andy Hinchcliffe was mentioned in just the sixth tweet that the Manchester City official Twitter account ever sent. I'll leave the tweet to do the talking, but note the respect for his international career and the use of a nickname despite the severity of the incident being reported on, which was Hamburg away, according to the fixture list. The tweet is this, seven England cap legend Hinch thrown out of press box, exclamation mark. More of a surprise was the content of the club's fourth ever tweet, an update on set piece menu's own Hugh Ferris. Though a somewhat less salacious missive, the fact that the club saw fit to mention Mr. Ferris so early on clearly speaks of his importance to the club, mm. above and beyond so-called legend, Hinch. Here is the incredibly crucial update on the same day, again, at Hamburg away. Just been past a huge Ferris wheel with Hugh Ferris on our way to the stadium for the training session, Dash Tim. Now, this leads us uh, as a sidebar to um, the important information that Tim Oscroft, who is a contributor to this podcast, and uh, 
noted friend of even now, Andy Hinchcliffe, wrote that message. So thanks, Tim. The response, funnily enough, to this tweet, um, on the 13th of May, 2015, from at Gunamind, says, Tim, can you please show us a picture? It just has that one response. Hang on, that's from 2015? No, it's from 2009, but the response came in six years yeah, yeah. later. That's extraordinary. In fact, the, it continues, Matthew, the official account has shown nothing but respect for Hugh, while repeatedly showing England's 143rd greatest ever left back some disdain. See the following. Next tweet. This is so wrong. I have been moved two seats to the right by the BBC. Now I have the inane ramblings of seven cat wander Hinchcliffe in my ear. This responded to in December of 2015 by at Young Lack Sleep, how are you a professional football club? And also <laughs> at Abash MUFC, who ran this account before? Probably a 12-year-old, for fuck's sake. And then the final tweets from this uh, litany of early tweets from the official Manchester City Twitter account. Andy Hinchcliffe getting a gift of homemade fudge cake and signing autographs. Still a legend in his own lunchtime and a good lad. That from Pete, who we all know, uh, mm -hmm. the three of us, is Pete Fergie Ferguson. And is responded to again by at Young Lack Sleep saying, what the f***? And finally by Carl Carpenter in May 2018 saying, at Set Piece Menu, I think you all need to see this. <laughs> so two and a half years later, we have it. Matthew continues and indeed concludes, poor Chinch. Any further information on Hinch being thrown out of the press box? There wasn't even a game that day, apparently. Or indeed on Hugh Ferris walking past a huge Ferris wheel would be greatly appreciated. Thanks as ever for the fantastic content. Uh, you're the best. That's from Matthew. I cannot provide any further clarity on any of that because I can't remember. I was on that trip as well to Hamburg. Do you remember the huge Ferris wheel? No, um... But I do remember, was that the game that Franco fell asleep in the press box? Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Might be having too many European trips to Hamburg for the foreseeable future. Fortunes have gone in somewhat opposite direction. Yeah, not, not so much a Euro force, the Dino anymore, are they? The, um, it's a shame, it's a lovely city, Hamburg. I had a really nice time. I think that might have been my first ever... European away as a journalist. But was that later in the in the UEFA Cup run than the, the twin Danish expeditions to yes, Aarhus the, and Copenhagen? It was the eventual end of the run in the UEFA yes. Cup for Manchester City. They, um, despite a rousing second leg attempt to come back, they, uh, they just failed uh, to do so. And earlier on in that trip, the, the, the Danish extravaganza you mentioned, you, we talked about mix zones earlier, didn't we? Mm -hmm. One of my favourite mix zones at the Parkin Stadium in Copenhagen, they were rebuilding one of the stands and decided to have the mix zone behind the fake picture of crowd that they erected to try and retain atmosphere inside a building site, which was not enough protection to stop the snow from coming down on our heads during interviews. In fact, next time you see Micah, Rory, mm -hmm. relay that story to him because I'm pretty sure I interviewed Micah in the mix zone with snow falling down after that game. To be fair to Micah, Micah is one of the few uh, former players to go into the broadcast media who didn't completely shun the broadcast media while still a player. He's like the, the anti-strolls, is Micah. Because he was actually, you, you could talk to Micah and he was always ha generally happy to stop, was Micah. Whereas strolls, amongst others, 
was very much of the view that he had better things to do than talk, to talk to mere journalists. That was also the game where Nader Manua scored a very rare goal for Manchester City and celebrated in front of the drawn fans <laughs> <laughs> in the mural. I've, um, I've been rained on inside the Veltins Arena in Gelsenkirchen. Shout because of the hole in the roof. Yeah, which, yeah, there was just one entire panel missing from the, the roof above the, uh, the, the main stand, which apparently no one seemed all that bothered about. Yes, I was at that game too. <laughs> I, uh, was that Another, City or Man was That, that was Manchester United, United in, the, in the semi-finals, the semi-finals of 2009. Yeah. Uh, 2011, also 2011, there. 2011, sorry. I was also there. So, do you know what we did on, on, on BT the other day? We did, um, what's your, you know, the best atmosphere you can remember? And I, I eventually went for the PSG, the Barca comeback against PSG, the 6-1. But it made, I was sort of cycling through all the, games that you've been to and it is a, obviously it's an incredible privilege to have done it and it made me really really sad because you god knows when when you get to experience an atmosphere again and there is something sort of the, the dopamine hit from just being at a game like that is maybe not shouting man united that wasn't that exciting but the um you know the, the dopamine hit from being a you know in a crowd of eighty thousand people for journalists and fans and i, I, I suspect for players is not easily replicated. It was, a, it was a very poignant moment for me. This, this conversation has been incredibly cyclical because this is exactly where we started. Well done, everybody. It's planned that way. Goodbye. <laughs>